Hello, Greyhound. This is Trap One. Do you read me? Over. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark McManus. This very special episode marks the release of the new wave of Doctor Who novelizations by celebrating the entire target range. It was the brainchild of Simon Fox, who we'll be hearing more from later. Some of your favourite Trap One podcasters, and me, will be sharing fond memories and favourite stories from across the many volumes of Target books. And we have an exclusive mini-episode of the Runcible Report from the Gallifrey's Most Wanted podcast. Before Target, three novelizations of Doctor Who novels were published by Frederick Muller Limited, and the first of these was based on the second serial, which introduced the Daleks. Hello, this is Lawrence from the Highlanders podcast. I'm going to be reading from David Whitaker's book, Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. Uh, David Whitaker was the original script editor for the TV series, and in 1964 he was approached by a publisher to adapt two stories in book form. Uh, The obvious choice for one of them was the immensely popular Doctor Who and the Daleks story by Terry Nation. Uh, Because it was the first of the books to be published, Whitaker had to create a new origin story for Ian and Barbara. So in this story, they're not teachers. Um, Well, Ian isn't. He's an unemployed scientist, and they don't know each other. Um, Ian is returning from an unsuccessful job interview when driving across a common he'd stopped by the poor conditions and then comes across Barbara who has just been involved in a vehicle accident and Ian and Barbara are looking for Susan in the fog when another figure suddenly appears. The footsteps I heard were cautious ones. I could almost imagine the owner picking his way carefully and not just because of the poor visibility either. This sort of walking was deliberately quiet. I felt the girl's fingers touch and then hold my arm. We both pressed ourselves back against the wreckage of the car and waited. I switched the torch off. The dim outline of a man became clear. He was wearing a cloak and under his fur hat I could see his silver hair. Surprisingly very long at the back of his neck, and touching the collar of his cloak. His head was bent down, peering at the ground, and in his hand he held a lighted match. He stopped suddenly, so near to us that I could have taken three steps and stood next to him. I saw him bend down on one knee and pick up something from the pavement. It was my cigarette. All my concentration was directed towards the match he was holding. The strength of its light never altered, and the quality of it was far whiter than any match I had ever seen before. The other thing that puzzled me was that it didn't seem to be burning any lower. Slowly he turned his head, and the girl's hand gripped even harder on my arm. He saw me first, and then he looked at the girl beside me. Hmm? What are you doing here? It was such an extraordinary question in the circumstances that I nearly burst out laughing. He got up and stood over us, holding the match higher in his hand. I felt it was up to me to say something. A girl's been hurt, 
We're looking for her. He nodded slowly. A tragic business. The soldier in the lorry has been killed. You've been hurt too, young lady, by the look of you. You should be in bed. Not until I found Susan, she said quietly, and the old man gave her a sharp, almost startled look. I couldn't stop myself any longer. What is that match thing? It never seems to burn down. Just a little invention of mine, he said easily, and turned his attention to my companion. What did you say happened to the girl? She was hurt, I told you. I left her here on the pavement and went to get help. When we came back, she'd gone. Made her own way home, perhaps. That isn't likely, is it? I said. He waved a hand in the air, a gesture of bewilderment. The younger so thoughtless. I saw his eyes glinting with malicious amusement. Perhaps one of her family found her and took her home. I didn't understand why he should be amused, and what was worse, his whole attitude was adding another layer of mystery to the business. Perhaps you'd like to help us look for her? I asked coldly. Better still, take us to your house. We ought to ring for the police. All this wreckage on the road can cause another accident. I wouldn't worry about the girl. I'm sure she's in safe hands. As for a telephone, I'm afraid my little nest doesn't possess such a thing. I tried to muster up all my patience. Then perhaps you could offer a hot drink and chair to this lady. She's been hurt too, as you said yourself. He looked at her and clicked his tongue in sympathy. It was the most insincere sound I'd ever heard in my life. The trouble is I've lost my key, and that's what I was looking for. He shot a look at me of such intense directness that I blinked. You haven't seen it, have you? Picked it up, perhaps. It's brass. There may even be a piece of black tape attached to it. I pulled it out of my pocket. Yes, I picked this up. His hand stretched out for it, but I closed my hand around it and looked at the girl. But you said this belonged to Susan. She nodded. I turned my attention back to the old man again. Apparently she wore it around her neck. Now I'll tell you what I think. You've found the girl, haven't you? And now, for some reason or other, you want this. Never mind about anybody else being hurt or injured or anything. Are you trying to give me a lecture on human behaviour, young man? He said sharply. I won't tolerate anything of the kind. You possess something that belongs to somebody else. Please give it to me. Yes, it does belong to somebody else. And that someone doesn't happen to be you. Have you taken that girl somewhere? I spoke the last three words into the fog, for the old man turned quickly and was swallowed up. I could hear his running footsteps. I glanced at the girl and saw the indecision in her eyes, but I wasn't in the mood to leave it all to a speculation. I took her hand firmly, and she came with me without protest as we ran up the road after him. After a few seconds, I couldn't hear his footsteps any more and slowed down. I flashed the torch about me and made out the square shape of what seemed to be a hut set back from the road on the common itself. I walked towards it and then both the girl and I stopped and stared at a police telephone box. Thank you very much, Sir Lawrence, for the reading. Come to think of it, there's a road traffic accident when the TARDIS lands on a common at the end of the massacre too. 
In Doctor Who, they're clearly quite hazardous for motorists. Another book which creates an alternative meeting for a companion is The Doomsday Weapon by Malcolm Hulk, an adaptation of his own television story, the less excitingly named Colony in Space. This is a book I've always enjoyed the opening of. On TV, it's the fourth adventure for the third Doctor and Joe Grant, but here it's written as if uh, they're just meeting for the first time. We even get a little bit of Joe's job interview with the Brigadier. Um, so despite the, the, the Brigadier already knowing about the Master, um, the previous adventures have been without, without Joe Grant when they've, when they've faced the other Time Lord. But even before that, there's a really nice scene I like between two Time Lords, the elderly Keeper of the Time Lord Files and his trainee, which delivers all the exposition needed about the Doctor, the Master, Tardises, the Doctor's exile, um, while also giving us a tantalising glimpse of Time Lord society. The older Keeper reveals that he even took part in the rescue operation at the end of the war games and reminisces about how his TARDIS disguised itself as a machine gun post when it materialised. The target range itself began in 1972 as a new children's imprint of a publisher called Universal Tandem. They reprinted the three Muller titles and approached the BBC about adapting more. Script editor Terence Dix enthusiastically volunteered to write many of them and became their most prolific writer. Klaus Joinson. Okay, yes, Terence Dix. We're all grateful for the sheer amount of energy he put into these. There's a big book coming. But we all secretly preferred it when the original writer of the story did the novelisation, right? Or the script editor, or the producer. It's like when Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat did those recent novelizations. It was always great when, say, Malcolm Hulk or Brian Hales adapted their own stories. And one of the best of these was one of my favourite novelizations, Logopolis, written by Christopher H. Bidmead, who was not only script editor at the time, but also the writer. This may have been one of the very first novelizations I ever read. And it got me right from the first line. Quote, Events cast shadows before them, but the huger shadows creep over us, unseen. What a line! It doesn't necessarily make sense. Do events cast shadows before them? I don't think so, but, you know, this is all about time travel. I suppose it could, in a way. But it doesn't matter. It's a metaphor of sorts, and it just sings. And the rest of the novel is just as good. The master has never been better constantly calculating how to take advantage of the spiralling situation. Bidmead gives the Doctor brilliant lines, and Adric, Nyssa and Tegan slowly assemble to become the first trio of companions since the first Doctor. So all hail, Terence Dix. I won't hear a word against him. But don't you wish Robert Holmes had written more novelizations? Thank you, Klaus. Pete Lambert remembers reading Day of the Daleks. Hello, this is Pete. Uh, and when Mark said he wanted us all to contribute some words on our favourite Target books, I immediately knew the one for me was Doctor Who and the Day of the Daleks by Terence Dix, adapted from a script that he'd already done quite a bit of adapting on in order to get it on screen, originally by Louis Marks. So I bought this lovely edition with the logo, diamond logo version, Doctor Who font on the front, 
cover is a really striking white and gold with all the Daleks and the Ogron in gold and the, the Doctor's face uh, in, in the uh, Chris Achielos black and white penciling style on the front. Uh, and it's I splashed out 85 pence on this book. Uh, it must have been in around 81 or 82. This is from the fifth impression of the book. It had originally been printed in 74 uh, and they'd had to keep going back and, and producing more copies of it. Clearly a very popular one. And I can tell from the list at the start of the book, which lists all other Target books available, several of them have got little pencil ticks next to their names in my own fair handwriting, which tells me that this was, if I count them up, this must have been the 13th Target book that I bought. Now, one of the things that makes this book particularly special to me is that it was the only Doctor Who book in my school library. Uh, even though I owned a copy of my own, it was compulsory every term, so three times a year, to read at least one book that was on a school-approved library list. And then you had to do a little quiz at the end of it. You had to write uh, your answers up to prove that you'd done it, and the librarian would check this, and you had to do three books a year. Or rather, you had to hand in three completed questionnaires every year. They didn't really check. They didn't keep them all on file. Uh, and I think I got away with it for about three years. I, I read this book once every term, and, uh, and I did read it again, and then filled out the questionnaire. Um, a couple of the questions were um, are still etched in my mind. There's a scene at, near the start where we hear that the rebels are huddled round a fire that blazed in a makeshift brazier. And uh, one of the questions was, what is a makeshift brazier? And uh, obviously not quite the same as a makeshift brazier. And I have helpfully now never confused the two in my adult life. That mention of the rebels being huddled around this makeshift brazier was in the first chapter, which, which adds a brilliant bit of scene setting to the story, as you often get with, with Terrence Dix's very best novelizations. You get to meet the rebels before the story gets going. You get to find out how they drew up their plans, how they got hold of time travel technology by stealing it from the Daleks, all through the eyes of Moni, one of the rebels who we don't meet, who doesn't really get involved in the plot until later on. And he also sees Anat as their real leader. Uh, he's very full of glowing praise for her. So she's established as a really strong protagonist in the story right from the beginning before we get to see the Doctor and Joe. It also paints this world that they live in on a much broader canvas than they could do in the TV studios, of course. So you hear that there are rebels in every city, but they're getting stamped out. We do get to meet also in this introduction the Daleks' fearsome henchmen. The Ogrons are described as ape men, which must not be confused with gorillas. And I will never confuse an ape man with a gorilla because that was another one of the questions on the little neatly typed up question sheet that I filled out many times, explaining that gorilla is Spanish for little fighter, I think, or little band of fighters, um, something like that anyway. Um, another lovely aspect that sticks in my mind in this book is the famous wine and cheese scene, where the doctor is savouring his uh, sardonic wines and, uh, and, and exclusive cheeses. That moment really stuck in my formative mind to the extent that when the point at which my taste buds had matured to the point where I could actually stand the taste of red wine and I sat there sipping some and then I had some cheese and I thought that's it I've finally a grown-up I have attained John Pertwee levels of sophistication it was probably a screw cap bottle of wine that time I don't know what he would have made of that 
There are some lovely extra character touches in the book as well. Um, it's great when the brigadier think ponders the, you know, the idea that this war might be coming, and he starts to think how nice it would be to get back to being in the regular army and only having a regular war to fight, uh, something that Dix thinks he possibly yearns for. And also there's a point in the TV version, which it never occurs to me when watching it, but I think a phone rings and the rebels all just know what it is and, and, and that answering it is a big deal. In the novelization, uh, you get their thought process there as they consider what this ringing thing is. And, oh, it's obviously some kind of communication device, which if we don't answer it will cause suspicion. But um, that's just a little touch. I can just imagine it niggling at Terence that that had made it onto screen without him having addressed the fact that people from the 22nd century wouldn't recognize a 1970s or 1980s British telephone receiver. I think for a lot of us, these Target novels are etched in our minds as the definitive versions of, of the stories because we will have read them several times or many times and it's still the case for me whenever I watch Day of the Daleks on any of the many formats that it's now miraculously available on it gets to the end and there isn't that scene of the Doctor and Joe meeting themselves of course they'd run out of time the, the, the episode was up to full length and it just didn't need it in terms of completing the story but uh, but it does round off the book perfectly to actually have that that happening and it still seems rather strange that the, the the tv version is just the edited highlights of the book in a way so this is a fantastic one of the books and if you aren't familiar with actually reading them do give it a look there's a fantastic audiobook of it available too that's up on audible or can be bought uh, on disc and in that richard franklin really has fun making all of the different male characters sound differently his um his john pertwee is is almost uh, tongue-in-cheek quite literally uh, in terms of how his voice sounds and uh, and and benton comes out of it sounding practically like a, a member of wurzel gummidge's fraternity so it makes him uh, very distinctive from the other soldiers Thank you very much, Pete. Among many other titles, Terence Dix wrote Revenge of the Cybermen, Genesis of the Daleks and Web of Fear, all of which were published in 1976. Keith Say, Jason McLaughlin and Hayden Gribble remember those titles. Splendid chaps, all of them. Hello, this is Keith. The first Target book I ever had, and I bought it myself with my pocket money, was Revenge of the Cybermen which cost a grand total of 40p. I think I wanted a Dalek story, but there wasn't one, so I got a Cyberman instead. Um, I remember my sister reading it to me and being very spooked out by the description of the bodies lying in the corridors, to the point I think I had to have something else read to me before I went to sleep. Ironically, I got the first uh, VHS with Revenge of the Cybermen as well, so that's a bit uh, coincidental. Plus, it was the first evidence that Target's books lied, because at the back of that uh, book there was a TARDIS scene which wasn't in the actual broadcast version. That was the end of Innocence. The first book I remember reading myself was Dare the Daleks, and then I was sort of on a roll of uh, rereading all the old stories, some of which were actually uh, better in book form, as it turned out they were on the television. I can sort of remember where I was when I read some of them. Fury from the Deep is very sort of um, water damaged because I was reading it on a canal boat and uh, Lockgate water went on it. I remember reading The Demons in Yugoslavia and getting some very um, strange looks from people as they saw the demonic cover, obviously not realising it was a, a kid's book at the time. And uh, 
even in the video age, I kept continued to collect them and getting all the gaps. And then if I'd go somewhere, I'd go to a second-hand bookstore or whatever, and if I saw one I didn't have, I'd buy and add to the collection. And then I got eBay, and that was game over, because I just filled in all the blanks and that was it. It was complete. And there's a bit, a bit of a gap in my life from uh, wanting to collect them ever since. <laughs> anyway, that was my target. They've been a formative thing on me over the years and probably got me reading as much as anything did. It was a battlefield. The ground was churned, scarred, ravaged. Nothing grew there, nothing lived. The twisted, rusting wrecks of war machines littered the landscape. There were strands of ravaged, tangled wire, collapsed dugouts, caved-in trenches. The perpetual twilight was made darker by fog. Thick, dank and evil. It swirled close to the muddy ground, hiding some of the horrors from view. Something stirred in the mud. A goggled, helmeted head peered over a ridge, surveyed the shattered landscape, and a hand beckoned, and more shapes rose and shambled forwards. There were about a dozen of them, battle-weary men in ragged uniforms, their weapons a strange mixture of old and new, their faces hidden by gas masks. A star shell burst over their heads, bathing them for a moment in a sickly green light before it spluttered into darkness. The thump of artillery came from somewhere in the distance with the hysterical clatter of automatic weapons, but the firing was some distance away. Too tired to even to react, the patrol shambled on its way. A man materialised out of the fog and stood looking in bewilderment after the soldiers. He was a very tall man, dressed in a comfortable old tweed trousers and a loosely hanging jacket. An amazingly long scarf was wound around his neck. A battered, broad-rimmed hat was jammed onto the tangle of curly brown hair. Hands deep in his pockets, he pivoted slowly on his heels, turning in a complete circle to survey the desolate landscape. He shook his head. The bright blue eyes clouded with puzzlement. This was all wrong, he thought. It was all terribly wrong. The transmat beam should have taken him back to the space station. Instead, he was here, in this terrible place. How could it possibly have happened? Greetings, Doctor. The Doctor spun around at the sound of the voice behind him. A tall, distinguished figure in flowing robes stood looking at him quizzically. A Time Lord. The Doctor knew all about Time Lords. He was one, himself. He had left his own people, untold years ago, to roam through space and time in his borrowed TARDIS. He'd rebelled against the Time Lords, been captured and exiled by them, and had, at last, made his peace with them. He had served them often, sometimes willingly, sometimes not. These days their hold on him was tenuous, but it was still a hold. A limitation of his freedom, and the Doctor never failed to resent it. He glared at the elegant figure before him. So, I've been hijacked, he said indignantly. Don't you realise how dangerous it is to interfere with a transmat beam? Oh, come, Doctor, not with our techniques. 
We transcended such simple mechanic devices when the universe was young. The languid voice held all the effortless superiority that the doctor always found so infuriating. He controlled himself with a mighty effort. Whatever I may have done, whatever crimes I've committed in your eyes, I've made ample restitution. I have done you great services and I have given my freedom as a reward. I will not tolerate this continual interference in my lives. The Time Lord looked thoughtfully at him and began to stroll across the battlefield with an air of someone taking a turn on the lawn of a garden party. The dull rumble of gunfire came from somewhere in the distance. Continual interference, Doctor. We pride ourselves we seldom interfere with the affairs of others. Except mine, the Doctor said bitterly. He hurried after the Time Lord. Ah, but you are an exception, Doctor. A special case. You enjoy the freedom we allow you. And occasionally, not continually, we ask you to do something for us. The Doctor came to a halt, his arms folded. I won't do it, he said obstinately. Whatever you want, I won't do it. The Time Lord spoke one word. Daleks! The Doctor spun round. Daleks? Well, what about them? The Time Lord paused, as if collected his argument, then said, Our latest temporal projections foresee a time stream in which the Daleks will have destroyed all other life forms. They will become the dominant creatures in the universe. That's always been their aim, agreed the Doctor. Go on. We'd like you to return to Scarrow to a point in time just before the Daleks evolved. Immediately the Doctor guessed the Time Lord's plan and prevent their creation. That, or alter the genetic development so they evolve into less aggressive creatures. At the very least you might discover some weakness that could serve as a weapon against them. The Doctor tried to look as if he was thinking it over but it was no more than a pretense. He couldn't resist the idea of a chance to defeat his oldest enemies once and for all. Oh, all right. All right. I suppose I'll have to help you just one more time. Return me to the TARDIS. No need for that, Doctor. This is Scarrow, the Time Lord gestured at the desolate scene around them. Scarrow, after a thousand years of war between Calids and Fowls, we thought it would save time if we assumed your agreement. He tossed something to the doctor, who caught it instinctively. He found himself holding a heavy, ornately designed bangle in a metal that looked something like copper. It wasn't copper, of course, any more than the object was a simple ornament it appeared to be. A time ring, doctor. It will return you to the TARDIS when your mission is finished. Don't lose it, will you? It's your lifeline. Good luck. The Time Lord vanished, as suddenly and silently as he had appeared. That's a segment from Chapter 1 of Doctor Who and the Genesis of the Daleks by Terence Dix, who we could quite rightly call the godfather of the target range as he contributed a whopping 67 titles to the range whilst it was in publication back in the 70s and 80s. The Target books to a certain generation, like myself, 
were effectively the video and DVD or Blu-ray box set of Doctor Who. They were the only way in which we could revisit stories, bar the odd summer television or Christmas television repeat, which we got very, very sporadically back in the day. Uh, My first book, actually, wasn't this one, even though it remains one of my favourites, and it's probably my favourite Doctor Who story of all time. But my first book was actually Doctor Who and the Zabi by Bill Strutton. I remember being taken to one of the newsagents in uh, my local hometown and seeing the Doctor Who range, and for some reason the cover of Doctor Who and the Zabi really struck out on me as it showed the first Doctor amongst a swirl of cosmic planets and strange creatures which I later found out to be Zabi and Monoptera. It's not even one of my favourite books and it's not even one of my favourite stories, but I think it's the artwork that encouraged me to pick up that and from then I was hooked and it's a testament to the artwork of Chris Achelios who did a lot of the covers in the early target range and I think it's a great reason why he probably remains my favourite artist of the target range and I love the fact that the new series novelizations uh, pay homage to his style and keep that kind of like technique going Um, So I'm really, really looking forward to the new releases that are coming uh, later on this year. Um, Especially I would like to see uh, what Robert Sherman does with the Dalek story from season one. I think that's going to be really, really good. So yeah, the Target books hold a special place in my memories and my Doctor Who time and I think they do for quite a lot of fans as well and I think the Doctor Who universe would be a poorer place if we never had the Doctor Who target range. Child Out of Time, Growing Up with Doctor Who in the Wilderness Years by Hayden Gribble, read by the author. Chapter 4, Escape to Danger. There comes a time in every little boy's life when he loves something so much that he would do anything to have it. It could be a toy, sitting proudly on the shelf of some vast Toys R Us warehouse somewhere in the home counties, tantalisingly out of reach of those stretched up on their tiptoes, with their searching fingertips pointing to the heavens. Or it could be a sticker collection, for example the Panini Premier League stickers, or Pokemon cards that spent much of the 1990s on the playground black market, with many a hopeless child exchanging his dinner money or homework duties just for a shiny Charizard. For me, though, my obsession led to something I had never done before or since. But I didn't have to haggle with my friends to trade my insane stash of Diglett and power-up cards just to get a Pikachu special. Oh no, my determination for more Doctor Who, I'm ashamed and slightly proud to admit, involved me taking something out of my school library on, well, let's just say an extended loan. It was a book, not one of your Enid Blyton's or Roald Dahl's, but a very special one that I'd been drawn to. It didn't look that appetising to the eyes of your average schoolchild, but it stood battered and torn by the winds of time and many grubby fingerprints adorning its dirty cream cover. Yet despite its beaten state, it was one of the most special things I'd ever found, and considering it must have been in my school for decades, it had been under my nose the whole time. 
It was a target book, not just any old target book. It was a literary realisation of something called Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. Despite my obsession with writing and literature, I didn't frequent that small library in my school. I can still picture it now, though. It was a multicoloured haven for readers of all ages, and from time to time, if a pupil had forgotten their reading book, then they would be asked to go to the library and pick one out to read for that afternoon and return afterwards. On this day, I had left my book at home. It would have been so easy to get my teacher to ring home and ask my mum to drop it off, as we only lived across the street from the primary school. But as I knew that I'd already risked the untethered wrath of my teacher, who, when angry, used to pull a face like Terence Hardiman in The Demon Headmaster when miffed, I decided to ask whether I could take a book out instead. Luckily, she must have been in a good mood that day, as I was allowed to venture into the library alone. As I ran my finger along the spines of the various books on offer, I came across a thin, crumbling one. It attracted my attention more than the many R.L. Stein's Goosebump novels that lined the shelf. As the title was written down the spine, I turned my head on its side and read out loud the text, Doctor Who and The Web of Fear? I was shocked and excited beyond belief. I couldn't believe that there was a Doctor Who book in my school library. As I tore it away from its place, sandwiched between those Goosebumps books, I was filled with excitement when I saw that it was a Patrick Troughton story. There he was on the front, looming large over what looked like an abominable snowman, and a soldier brandishing his gun ready to attack. I hurried back to my classroom and tripped up on a bag strap that was poking out of the cloakroom ready to entangle me. I picked myself up, wriggled up out of the loop, and quickly settled back in my chair and began reading. All of time stopped around me. From the very first chapter, thrillingly called Return of Evil, I was immersed in the story. I was there when Professor Travers, who I already knew from that lone episode of The Abominable Snowman on the Patrick Troughton Years VHS, was demanding his inactive yeti back from the stubborn Emile Julius. I was standing in the TARDIS when the Doctor and Jamie bickered over whether the, the dematerialising light was flashing or not. I stepped from the police box into a deserted London underground, and along with the familiar yet younger version of Lethbridge Stewart, still only a colonel here, I tried to keep the oncoming yeti at bay with my firearm. I also ran with Jamie and the funny yet cowardly Evans as they were trapped in the dark by the oncoming web-like fungus that killed all in its path. Instantly, The Web of Fear became my favourite book. It was more thrilling than James and the Giant Peach, better than those quaint and boring Pudding Lane books we were forced to read from time to time. I loved it so much. No other book had sucked me into its contents with such ease. I had given in and I was powerless to stop it from taking me over. Maybe it was the influence of the great intelligence that seduced me. I just had to know what happened next. I couldn't put it down. Even after reading time was over, I wanted to stop my work that afternoon, sit under the shady tree in the playground and lose myself until the very last word had been read. But, to guarantee that I completed it, I had to smuggle the book out of class and back home. Cunningly looking from side to side, I slipped the book into my blue folder. Later on, I would have an attack of conscience and put that brilliant novel back on the shelf. Time after time, over the next two years at that school, 
It was my go-to book. I read it and reread it and memorised every word. I knew Anne Travers like she was family. I knew who the traitor was and was able to decipher Staff Sergeant Arnold's treachery before his motives were revealed to the rest of the characters. I was so shocked that a book as brilliant as this was always there to be taken out, unwanted by my peers. What a treat they were missing out on. Eventually, I had taken the book out so often that it felt like the school was borrowing it from me. You may be wondering why I admitted that I had taken that brilliant book out on an extended loan. Well, as I sit here in my office, reading this to you now, about 24 years on, there it is, sitting proudly on my bookshelf, battered and torn, more than ever, but with some added text on its first page that was not there all those years ago. The text consists of four words, just four words, that make this old and tired book all that more special to me. To Hayden, Terence Sticks. It is to this day, and always will be, my favourite. Thank you to Keith, Jason and Hayden. Hayden's memoir, Child Out of Time, Growing Up with Doctor Who in the Wilderness Years, is available now in paperback and on Kindle, and I highly recommend picking it up. I'll put a link in the show notes and also to an episode of the Trap One podcast where Hayden joins me to talk about writing it. Now, James Winstanley and Matt Grady remember The Green Death and The Sunmakers. These guys are great too. There are worlds out there where the sky is burning, where the seas sleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Somewhere there's danger, somewhere there's injustice, somewhere else the tea's getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. When I heard those words on the 6th of December 1989, Little did I know that it was going to be many years before we would see the Doctor back on TV with his adventures. And uh, it was very sad. It was a period of uh, great unknown as to whether or not it would come back at all. And whilst the, the adventures continued in the new adventure novels, this is really what sparked my interest in the Target books. Because I'd, I'd never had the Target books as a child. Um, it was something that um, I was introduced to uh, due to my lack of, of access to Doctor Who. The, the VHS releases that were coming out sort of periodically, um, starting from sort of 1986. So I had a few uh, VHS stories of classic Doctor Who, but there was obviously many missing stories uh, from that. And... Um, I really was into the Pertwee years at this time. And some of those stories, you, you know, were coming out maybe once a year, uh, once every two years. So you had, um, when the, the sort of series ended that year in 89, you had the Time Warrior. 91, you had the Planet of Spiders. 91, again, you had the Three Doctors. But they were sort of spaced out. And so, as well as continuing with the sort of new adventure books, I started to go back and start to fill in my collection um, of, of stories using the Target books. And, and to be honest, the, the one book that I've used and read the most is actually the program guide. So, the, the Target program guide that came out in 1989, which had 
all of the the details of all of the sort of classic, if you like, Doctor Who stories. And that is what I use to sort of fill in the gap. So if I, for example, um, read that a companion left in a particular story and I didn't have that story on VHS and I'd never seen that story, I'd go and try and find the target book. Um, The Green Death, for example, the Green Death didn't come out on VHS until 1996. So I knew that at some point that Joe left the Doctor. I'd seen it in the programme guide that that episode was the Green Death. And so one of the first um, Target novelizations I bought was the Green Death. So I could find out exactly what happened to Joe uh, and why she left. So so for me, the Target books have, have always been about filling in the bits that I don't know um and until my collection um was complete and when i was at university in 1995 i actually sold all of my um vhs um to to raise money because i ran out of money while i was at university so i actually sold all my vhs but kept my target books because the target books um, allowed me still to enjoy those adventures, but in just a, a very different way. So that that really is my history with, with targets, is they have been there to supplement when I didn't know the story or if I wasn't able to get hold of the story. Of course, now you only have to go into BritBox and you've got every single story there. And in a way, that's quite sad because I think my love of reading comes from, uh, you know, filling in those gaps, filling in the the stories and finding out what happened in between um, the adventures that I'd I'd watched and the ones I was unaware of. So, um, yeah, that's my sort of experience with with Target. And um, just to finish off, I'm going to do a little bit of reading from the one I've just mentioned, The Green Death. The Doctor watched as Professor Jones finished his bowl of fungus soup. The antidote had worked, and the green patch on the professor's neck had totally disappeared. He's really feeling better now, said Joe cheerfully. Oh, let the poor man speak for himself, the doctor smiled. He turned to Nancy. Got any of that soup for me? I'm famished. Sorry, said Nancy. The unit troops have scoffed the lot. Oh, too bad. Well, Joe, time to go. We've got to... Report to Unit HQ in London. Joe looked at Cliff, then to the Doctor. I don't think I'll be going back yet, Doctor. Oh, you want to stay on here a little bit longer? Not here exactly, Joe said. She didn't know quite how to break the news to the Doctor. Cliff is setting up an expedition to go to the upper reaches of the Amazon and he's asked me to go with him. Really? said the doctor, trying to seem pleased. When? Very soon now, said the professor. It's all fixed. We'll stop in Cardiff to get our supplies and get married, and then we'll be on our way. The doctor looked at Joe's fair hair and pretty face. They had travelled a great deal together through time and space, and he had learned to love her very dearly. He found it difficult to accept in his heart that he might never see her again. There was a sudden stiffness in his neck and he knew his eyes were glistening. That's wonderful, he said. 
I hope you'll be very happy. Now excuse me, I really must hurry back to London. He got out of the bedroom just before a large wet tear cascaded down his 725-year-old cheeks. Slowly, he went down the stairs, got into his car, Bessie, and drove away. You have been listening to James Winstanley, a.k.a. Jixter2009, on Twitter. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt Greedy from Alberta, Canada. I was the managing editor and publisher for Time Shadows, as well as Mythmaker's uh, retrospective anthologies. Uh, when I was young, I definitely enjoyed collecting and reading the target novelizations, uh, especially for the, the cover art. Uh, I loved uh, Alistair Pearson's work. Uh, one fun story about my uh, collection was when I was about 20 years ago, a friend of mine was working for a theater company in Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. And he had mentioned that uh, a, a visiting uh, director uh, had stated uh, that he had appeared in a Doctor Who story with uh, Tom Baker. And uh, so I pushed him uh, about that. Uh, you know, or does he remember which story or who the actor was? And uh, he, he mentioned the name uh, Henry Wolfe. So I uh, probably checked uh, IMDb at the time. And uh, lo and behold, uh, of course, that's the uh, the one who plays the collector and the sunmakers. So I uh, pulled out my uh, uh, novelization of the sunmakers uh, with uh, Mr. Wolf uh, right on the cover there with the uh, uh, skull cap, and uh, and I um, had the uh, I turned over the book to my friend to uh, see if uh, Mr. Wolf would sign it and. Uh, Apparently got a big kick out of uh, seeing a, a copy of the novelization of the Sunmakers, and he uh, uh, put a lovely little note inside the, um, in the book for me when he signed it. And uh, incidentally, uh, uh, Henry Wolf uh, has been living in Canada for at least the past thirty years, and uh, was a, a taught uh, taught uh, acting and uh, drama at the university and uh, the one of the uh, University of Saskatchewan in the prairies here and uh, they recently uh, named um, one of their theaters uh, after him which is quite an honor so yeah that's uh, that's my story what a cool voice I'm sorry that you have to listen to me again now but thank you to James and Matt I'm now delighted to present an exclusive mini episode of Gallifrey's Most Wanted the Runcible Report with Ross and the City of Jeff. Well, hello, and welcome to Gallifrey's Most Wanted... Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. Trap one, and we're going to talk Target books. I'm Ross Aiken. And I'm the City of Jeff. And we've been very kindly invited to come and tell you about our Target book experience. But, you want... Can I go first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Of course. course. I'm going to go first because my first Target book was actually ten Pinnacle books. I'm an American. You can tell by the funny accent. But in this country... They published 10, pin, 10 doc reprints of Target books. A company called Pinnacle did it. It had an intro by Harlan Ellison, the famous science fiction writer, most famously known for me, uh, the writer of Star Trek's uh, City on the Edge of Forever, the most famous Star Trek episode ever. But these had their own covers, their own logo. The, the cover art was unique. The logo, which me and Jeff were talking about before we started, is a great cover. And it was just that they were just reprints of the Target. The first one's Day of the Daleks. It's the Doomsday Weapon. 
And there were ten books, and the first one was The Day of the Daleks, which has... It's basically a monkey with fangs on it for the Ogron. Um, Doomsday Machine, Donna Freud, and it was just an eclectic one. And my brother gave these to me, and all the Doctor Who I was seeing was the first four years of Tom Baker. And then I started getting, like, the... I started getting... Looking it up, and he told me about it. And I, I don't know what I saw, but I started to learn little bits and pieces of Doctor that there were other doctors. And then I read these books. And any story that is not a Tom Baker story doesn't have a doctor on the cover. The doctor only appears on the cover in the last two books Android Invasion and The Seeds of Doom. I Google, people Google this, the Pinnacle Doctor Who Target books are great, but they were. Some of them were adaptations of stories I saw, but then there were these, the few that were like, oh, the di- what's a dinosaur invasion? Oh, what's, this, yeah. what's yeah. this doomsday machine? And the dinosaur invasion had two different covers, so it's, which I didn't know until I saw this. I had the green one, not the blue one. It's, if, when you look it up, you'll see what I mean. Oh, Terrigan Zygon had two, different, where the logo in the background is a different shade. That's very cool. I'd never noticed that. I just had a set of all all of them, and they were great. And they were my into. They were my one of my earliest Doctor Who experiences, and they were great. I love them. I love them. Yeah, they're really pretty, aren't they? Um, they're not necessarily screen accurate, but oh, that really doesn't matter. They're stylized as all hell. I really look really the seeds like of doom. Stylized see, up. Yeah, the seeds of doom is an amazing cover. That would be a cool poster. Yeah. And I yeah. think the Android Invasion, I think the poster is more interesting than the story itself. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> but that was there's, there's some odd, odd bothery in that. Um, but, of course, it's not just the, the art, is it? Although that, that the first bite of a book is taken with the eye, isn't it? And you, you look at those covers and yeah. some well, of them just I mean, scream they, out to you, read me. <laughs> this re- they scream, read me, where the photo covers for the Dav- some of the Davison books are freaking awful. That was a design choice. Um, yeah, it, choice is a word. <laughs> choice is part of, yes, it's a choice. <laughs> it's a choice. So, did you ever get any of the Target books? Yeah, I got... The first one I ever saw was The Five Doctors with the silver, red, and blue cover. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, and that came out over here, and then the bookstore it was a comic shop. It didn't exist when it was called The Comic Shop. They started getting them imported, so they gave me one of every book they got and gave them to me as a going-away present when I left to go away to college. Oh, wow. So I kept one in my backpack or in my back pocket. So when I didn't want to read my theater book or my theater history book or this, or I just wanted to zone out in my room, I would read a Target book, and it would take. I mean, what is it? How long does it take to read a Target book? A day? If that. <laughs> it depends which ones you're reading. Um, but yeah, it, it can definitely take a little while. Um, but then, a couple of hours, happily done. I know, but I can't. Sort of like how easy these are to carry around with you and how quick a read they can be. I mean, you, you could polish one on off in a couple of hours with a good concentrated burst of reading. Some Maybe of the I'm, easy ones. Yeah, I got one in the mail today. Did you? I got the Crotons. Now, the Crotons I got out from my local library and I got the hardback edition. <gasps> with. I've got my... Yeah, the sort of purple hexagonal cover uh, with the croton in the middle of it. It was a glorious piece of art. Can you see and, it? What I'm oh, holding up? Bit closer. 
bit closer. No, I can't see your background's getting in the way. All right. But it's got these hexagons, and it's got the 80s logo, and this beautiful, actually a croton that looks like a crystal. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's the same cover, because I had to, um, when I got my copy of The Smugglers, I had to buy, the hardback version was like 20% of the, the paperback version. Paperback version was like 75 bucks. Wow. So, but... But I, you know, the old hardback versions are gorgeous. I would like, I want one of the retro uh, Unearthly Child or the Doctor and the Dalek, Doctor Who and the Daleks. I bought the reissue of now. Which ones did I get? I got uh, Doctor Who and the Zabi and Doctor Who and the Daleks. Um, I bought those two when they were reissued about what. Five, six years ago? Yeah, I've seen them online and just Four not bought ago. them. Because they, I think they would look good on a shelf. Those are books where you buy it. Yeah, they, they do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we digress, um, like we do here. At as usual. As usual. <laughs> but what was, I mean, but I mean, I carried them around to college, and I loved them, and I read them all. And it's how, honest to God, my first, in, because I had read all the Target books before I saw a Hartnell before I saw a Troughton, before I saw a Pertwee, I had read the Target books for them. Yeah. Because we were getting the Target books about the first time I was seeing Davison. So some of those I, I saw before I read them. Wow. So wow. My, my first pass through it is Doctor Who Magazine, like little synopses and episode guides for the short ones that weren't Target books yet, and the Target books. That was my right. So I'm getting my imagery from Doctor Who Monthly. That's what William Hartnell, Hartnell looks like. I didn't know what he sounded yeah. like. Um, I knew. I kind of knew who he. I'd seen the Sporting Life and kind of vaguely remembered it. Patrick Troughton, I knew because I've seen he's in a couple of Olivier films because he was part of Olivier's theater company. So I yeah. knew, and he yeah. was in, and he was in The Omen. Yeah, he's great in that. It's, that movie is really unsettlingly creepy. But, you know, the Target books were my in to the first three Doctors in different formats. I still have all mine. I have them on the shelf mixed in with the new adventures and the past Doctors. All the stuff, I don't separate my new adventures and my eighth Doctor and my missing adventures and pa- whatever. Mm. They're in story order because that's proper and right. <laughs> <laughs> As it should be. It it was, I mean, stories like the Sea Devils or the Cave Monsters, once you get into like Malcolm Hulk uh, and his novelizations of his TV stories, um, and you, you then come to see the TV stories after reading those books, and you're left kind of going, well, hang on a minute, that doesn't feel quite right. It is. <laughs> and was... you're saying that about the actual episodes. That is as so... Opposed to the book. It is incredibly true. It is incredibly true. Because some of the books are better than the stories. Some Uncle Terrence and Ian Martyrman, they embellish. And well, there's a circuit, a certain I... meter to Uncle Terrence. I've picked to talk about yes. my favorite target book. Uh, and my favorite target book is Ian Marta's The Sontaran Experiment. Best cut, one of the best covers, too, I think. It's oh, it's sim- gorgeous, isn't it? It's With, simple and yeah. right to the point. I think the Horror Fang Rock one's like that. 
Yeah, I mean, there are some of these target covers that just are remarkable. But but the Sontaran experiment, the whole package is something quite special for me. Um, I first read this because you, you'd go on holiday and me and my dad, we would go on holiday quite often to Scotland. Um, it was our favourite place to go. We'd go to the middle of nowhere, um, quite often Dumfries and Galloway area or, or a bit further up into the highlands near Inverness. Uh, and we we choose deliberately sparse, empty places just for the relaxation of it all. So imagine me, uh, 12 years old, I've chucked a few targets into my holiday bag uh, and I pick out the Sontaran experiment to read. And on the very first page, you, you get this description. I'll, I'll just pick this up. Um so the metallic skins of the nine globes were corroded and peeling, but here and there flickered a distorted image of the barren surroundings. Rolling moorlands bristling with reddish ferns that rustled ceaselessly with an eerie, brittle sound. Enormous rocky outcrops twisted into weird nightmare shapes, casting their monstrous shadows whenever the sun broke through the curling wraiths of vapour. And in the distance, massive cliffs hundreds of metres high with squarish, almost man-made outlines. Reading that in situ in Scotland, it just brought it to life so vividly and made it stick in my head so much. Um, you can't help but, but be immersed into the novel. Uh, and that's why it became my favourite. It's Plus, Is it expands on quite a... No, no, Dark finish yours, and, I gotta, and then I'll have a question. Go ahead, it expands on. I was, I was just going to say, it, it expands on what is a very brief and slight story, uh, and it just adds so much more in the description, in the extra elements that, that Marta adds into this novel. It, Yeah, that's just my happy place, who book. Is that the same copy that you had then? No. Um, okay. As I've mentioned probably on Twitter a couple of times, um, when I left home at 16, a lot of my Doctor Who collection got binned um, after I'd gone. Uh, so I lost pretty much everything. I managed to salvage a few books um, and my videos, um, but, but that was it. Uh, and the videos ended up getting sold in my early 20s to pay rent. So <laughs> I have very little of my original collection left. Wow. Mine is it just gets bigger and bigger. I'm going to do a purge of comics, hopefully. But uh, my Doctor Who stuff is going nowhere. And then either are my Target books. I probably haven't read one in 20 years. I will probably... I got a lot of editing to do tonight, folks. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, in the next two days. And then... Um, but you know, I may read the Crotons tonight, or give it a you know, give it a start. It's um, Do you know what? It's re it's really good fun. Um, just it's very hard once you've seen the story to 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 get that out of your mind when you're reading uh, yeah. the novelization of the story, uh, and that's the problem I have with coming to targets after I've seen the story. If I haven't, or if at the point where I hadn't seen all of Doctor Who. Reading those targets was my first taste. 
uh, like you said, meeting doctors you hadn't met before, finding the the, the, the doctor driving is is souped up uh, sportster. Um, little things like that um, were our introduction to some of the doctors and their character and their companions way before we ever saw the stories. But once you've seen the stories, coming back to those novels, it's really hard then to, to try and revisualize it as you would have originally. Yeah. It's, they were great. They're great. I think it, and it's for a lot of kids in your country and about my age, right? Would, this was how they would have discovered who, I mean, Oh, yeah, yeah. It would have been more. These were like these were the books they read. My the books I read. Uh, we all had childhood books that turned us into readers. Mine were the two. Absolutely. Uh, Willy Wonka, and Charlie. Well, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and then Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Yeah, that's yeah. that's my end of reading. It, they are still two of my favorite books ever. Uh, I love Roald Dahl. He's got an incredible imagination, you know. But but these were these novel, these books were kids. It taught, made them readers, you know. Made them that kid thing. Made them people that would go. And well, I want an episode guide because, man, you know, it's just you because you wanted to learn. You wanted more and more. It's just the right kind of tease. And I read a lot of science fiction. So did you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but if you want clarification at that point, you only have to look at the outpouring when Terence Dix passed away, and so many people who just said he 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 was my in to reading, he was my in to um, fiction, he was my in to Doctor Who, he was the gateway drug as it were because of course this was these books were coming out long before we had the videotapes oh, if you had a doctor who collection it was target novels it wasn't it wasn't the the bbc it wasn't VHS. the comics it, it wasn't, wasn't the, the magazines it was these books period yeah absolutely and they were they were a lifeline to people who thought they would never see these stories again no and I mean that they they hold a special thing. I had this milk crate under my bed in my dormitory at, at my university, and it was full of Doctor Who. Couldn't watch Doctor Who. I never VCR in my no. and it would have. Uh, I wasn't going to sit around and watch TV when there were girls the floor above me. You know, <laughs> and you're 18. You know, it's like well, there no there are no adults, and I can buy beer. Yeah. Um, but. On a quiet Sunday morning when I might have a vicious hangover, I'd read a Doctor Who book. If I just wanted to be get away from my roommate, I'd go out in the park across the street from the dorms and read a Doctor Who novel. Yeah, exactly. These Target novels, um, they were a lifeline. And they were uh, a passageway into something wonderful and fabulous and a chance to look at the history of that thing. We've spoken before about the, the current era being documented so so beautifully at the moment, especially with the, the Blu-ray releases. But Target novels were documenting Doctor Who before anything else. 
You know, and that brings us, we had just talked about the wilderness years, and it was other books. Books have always been um, a good substitute. Yeah. I prefer it as a substitute. We have so much now, but back then all we had these. I had eight books. That's all I had. Eight Doctor Who books. I didn't have a videotape. We hadn't recorded it. I could watch it on TV Monday through Friday for an hour at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As we talk about comfort episodes now and comfort watching, this was comfort reading. Five uh, Doctors of the highest mine. order. I really love the Five Doctors novelization. I remember reading that and it had all of them in it and I'm a big comic nerd. It was like the Avengers forming. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, of course, yeah. It's, so, it's a gathering of all of the icons, isn't it? Which is always an event. Yeah. it was. I mean, it was... And it allowed me to imagine. And then when I finally saw an earthly child, what did I, I went to a convention and saw a missing episode. It was yeah. Oh, it was it was a Troughton one. And afterwards, I went and got drunk with the guy who played Scotty from Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, blind drunk. Um, and it was like one of the first. That was the first time I ever saw Troughton. I think. But every other thing, but you know, it was uh, it was the Target novels. I had read those by that point. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, th- that's our take on our Doctor Who, our Target things. It, I think they're important to us. I mean, they came to me in my late teens, early twenties. Jeff, you were a little kid, but yeah, yeah, they are a huge. I think they are a. Other than the show, it is they are the most important part of Doctor Who history other than the show itself I, I think I think that's that's not uh, an outlandish statement to make I, I think, think you hit the nail right. on the head there and then possibly Doctor Who magazine coming in a third yeah that gets a bad rap a lot recently but I think if you it's always been fun and it's all it's like the Doctor it's different at every era but but um, but we want to thank um, Trap One for letting us come and uh, jibber jab like we do. I will the you will you and the listener will be hearing a well truncated edition of this this little recording. And um, Mark, thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Trap One listeners. No, thank you, chaps. That was a great conversation. I think a common thread in these reminiscences is about building a collection of Target books. Uh, probably other than the annuals, these, these were the first kind of pieces of Doctor Who merchandise that you could collect, and they were really affordable with, it, with your pocket money. I think I'd read a few of my junior school library before I bought my first two, which were The War Machines and Dragonfire. Uh, long before I'd ever seen a pre-McCoy story, I saw the consecutive Target library numbers on these two books, which were 136 and 137, and assumed that they were just consecutive stories. And I remember thinking that owning that many, like collecting the previous 135, was just kind of unimaginable. Um, And because I collected probably quite a few before I ever saw a program guide, um, I didn't know the story order of these, so I did then and have always, and still do to this day, keep my Target books in Target library number order rather than... um, chronological story order. 
most of my collection was picked up in, I think, second-hand bookshops and car boot sales and that type of thing. My copy of the Doomsday Weapon, which is the 1979 edition with the master front and centre on the cover, has a stamp on the inside cover which says, The Inn Book Exchange, 14 Cookson Street, Blackpool, and then in brackets, Behind Talbot Bus Station. And then in pencil it says 80p. Growing up in sort of rural West Cumbria, there wasn't that many places to, to find Doctor Who books. So I always remember uh, trips to Blackpool when I was a kid, sadly after the famous exhibition had closed down. There always seemed to be loads of second-hand bookshops and record stores and things like that where you could pick up Doctor Who stuff uh, fairly cheap. So I always uh, really look forward to it for that reason. You on Target, edited by Christopher Bryant, was published in February 2020 and features essays about each of the Target novelizations up to the 2019 collection and is available from Amazon. I will link to it in the show notes. I have an entry in the book, as well as loads of brilliant people, uh, including Simon Hart, who shares his writing about collecting of the books with us now. Hello, Simon Hart here. And I'm going to read you a piece that I wrote for You on Target, which was edited by Christopher Bryant and released last year. And this is my story of how I discovered the Target books. July 1990. It's my birthday, and as usual, there's a Target book-shaped present waiting to be unwrapped from my brother and sister. This time, I knew exactly which one it was going to be. There's only one it can be. The Mysterious Planet. The last one. I knew that there were going to be a few more released, but from this point on, from here on, I'd have a complete set. I unwrapped the little package and I grinned. I was right. They'd found the last book I needed. My set was complete. My target book collection began on my sixth birthday in 1981. I had money to spend and Dad took me into town to see what I might like though I think I was pretty sure what I wanted. Doctor Who books. We went into Bracknell's two bookshops, J.W. Smith's and W.H. Smith's, and I looked through the books on the shelves and picked the ones I hadn't already read and the ones that had the most exciting-looking covers. The Three Doctors, The Brain of Morbius, The Giant Robot, and Horror of Fang Rock, among others. A little collection with matching Target logos that sat on a shelf in the living room for a long while, then moved up to my own bedroom as the collection grew. And it really did grow. I was given Target books for certain milestones. The Stones of Blood for passing my first swimming test. The Invasion of Time for the second. Friends and family would look out for them for me. I had duplicates that I'd swap with friends at school. We'd pick up second-hand copies of the books at jumble sales, school fairs, Bracknell Market's second-hand bookstall and charity shops. I quickly became very adept at spotting a Target logo in a sea of other books, often upset to find it was one of Terence Dix's Mounty series or The Story of the Loch Ness Monster. That one always seemed to be around. Target books filled hours of long journeys, came to school for quiet reading time, filled rainy Sunday afternoons and pages of exercise books where I'd note down the ones I'd got and the ones I needed. I'm sure my parents were thrilled with how they kept me quiet for vast swathes of my childhood. Christmas was the best time though.
Every year, we'd get to October and my Auntie Linda would phone us up and ask me to write her a list of the Doctor Who books I hadn't got. She'd then diligently go to the WH Smiths in Yeovil and check what they had on the shelf, or if they didn't have them, she'd have four ordered in for me for my present. It was always exciting opening that present and finding out which one she'd found for me that year. Almost invariably, it would turn up in my stocking, almost as if my parents knew that that would be the one that would keep me in bed for a few hours longer, reading whichever one grabbed me the most that particular Christmas morning. The move from primary to secondary school didn't change my passion for the show or the target books, but it did mean it was slightly more hidden than it had been before. So much so that it took until the end of my first year to discover that my friend Richard was also a fan. This spurred on the next phase of my obsession with the target books. Pretty soon, things became competitive, and a race started between the two of us to see who could complete the collection first. I lost by about a year. That didn't really matter, though. It was fun turning up at school. A target book always fitted neatly into the inside pocket of my school blazer with a book that he'd not got and showing off that I'd got hold of it or finding a variation that we didn't know about with a different cover. Or, of course, that rush to WH Smith's after school together on a Friday afternoon to see if we could find the latest release and which of us got hold of it first. Silver Nemesis was found on a geography field trip in Reading Town Centre. Terror of the Vervoids turned up unexpectedly in J.W. Smith's, who'd stopped stocking the books for a while. An unexpected glut of older titles appeared in our new Hammocks bookshop. Kinder was in the new Safeway Superstore. Happy days. Richard was an artist, and so the cover artwork was something we'd always discuss. We both had favourite artists and covers, and we'd spend hours debating which book had the all-time best cover. Jeff Cummins, who'd painted the covers that had attracted me when I started my collection off, was a huge favourite, as latterly was the wonderful work of Alistair Pearson, whose photorealistic style greatly appealed to us both. We'd really look forward to seeing the forthcoming covers in DWM and DWB, and wonder if we'd recognise the photo references that had been used. It was with the covers that my target book story began back in the summer of 1980. We'd gone to visit my Uncle Graham and Auntie Chris. My cousin Adrian was, and indeed still is, a huge Doctor Who fan, and he was ready to give his little cousin a big push into becoming another big fan of the show. (laughs) Not that I needed much of a push, so I'd already fallen in love with it pretty quickly after my mum had introduced it to me at the start of season 17, the previous autumn. Adrian very kindly offered to lend me one of his Target books so that mum could read it to me. He gathered a selection from his shelf and laid them all out on the floor of his bedroom and said I could choose one to borrow. I wish I could remember which ones I'd turned down, but all I can remember now is the one I did choose. Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks by Terence Dix. Rather neatly, it became both my first TV story and my first Target book. I can remember making the connection between the cover and the story I'd seen the previous year, and the Daleks were always exciting anyway. It might not be Andrew Skeletor's most accomplished Doctor Who painting, but there's something magical about it for me. I still rather like the rather pensive-looking Tom Baker and the Daleks in the smoke, sucker arms extended. Maybe it's a last vestige of childhood excitement still hanging in there. I like to think so.
The pattern for the next couple of years was quickly set. Mum read me a chapter an evening, so each book would last about a fortnight. I'd sit next to her, enthralled by all these wonderful stories. Fortunately, Mum had had the good idea of asking in the library if they had any more Doctor Who books we could read. The librarian at Bath Library found many hardbacks on the shelf and popped them all on a table for me to choose from. I remember clearly the wonderful Chris Achilles covers for The Web of Fear, The Claws of Axos and The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Jeff Cummins' The Talons of Wang Chiang and Mike Little's lurid The Deadly Assassin cover too. I think I chose The Web of Fear that first time, but we worked our way through them and many, many more over the next few years. Mum even recorded herself reading The Invasion of Time to me, which I listened to many times, much to her embarrassment. Oh, I wish I still had those tapes. It's by no means an original thought to share that I desperately wanted to learn to read well enough so that I could read the books on my own. I wanted to read them quicker than one chapter a night. And so, from Doctor Who, I moved on to Terence Dix's Ask Oliver series because they were shelved next to his Doctor Who books, then to Roald Dahl and The Famous Five and The Secret Seven and Dragonfall Five, and in no time at all, I'd become a voracious reader. Recently, we moved house. One of the most pleasurable things about this was putting my target books back on the shelves. They might be battered, and most of them have seen better days, but there are memories related to every single one of them, and I wouldn't ever part with them. Thank you, Simon. I think the ability to quickly scan bookshelves to pick out a target logo is very familiar, and probably a skill that we've all picked up. Such a distinctive design, and this came to publisher Brian Mills as the name Target popped into his head because he wanted something alliterative with the parent company of Tandem. Jason Miller writes a brilliant blog about the Target novels, doctorwhonovels.wordpress.com, where, where Doctor is DR. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. It's very witty, incredibly insightful, thoroughly recommend uh, reading it. Uh, and Jason uh, shares his, some of his memories with us now. I'm 47 years old, and I have these dreams. I'll back up a bit first. Do you remember where you were the night that Super Bowl 19 was played? Sunday, January 20th, 1985? The Miami Dolphins versus the San Francisco 49ers, two of the National Football League's most storied franchises. The game was hyped as the battle between two great quarterbacks, Miami's Dan Marino and San Francisco's Joe Montana. The Dolphins, in their fifth Super Bowl in team history, after posting a 14-2 regular season record, and the 49ers having won 15 games out of a 16-game regular season. With Marino and Montana, both future Hall of Famers, the game became the first Super Bowl in which the starting quarterbacks of each team both threw for over 300 yards. And President Reagan performed the ceremonial coin toss live from the White House. Who wouldn't want to watch this game? Me. I had discovered Doctor Who in the autumn of 1984, 11 years old, and growing up in suburban Long Island, New York. A couple of classmates introduced me to the program, which at the time was airing nightly at 7 p.m. on WLIW, Channel 21, the local PBS station. I tuned in for about 45 seconds of Time Flight Part 1, Remarkably, they didn't scare me off the show forever. Came back a week later, a little more seriously, for Ark of Infinity Part 2. And within a few weeks, watching on and off nightly at 7pm, I reached the cliffhanger to Part 1 of Enlightenment, 
and vowed never to miss another episode. More than 36 years later, I still haven't. But as much as the televised episodes, the Target novelizations became just as important to me as those nightly PBS airings. These gave me a window into the broader history of the show, past doctors, different companions. By January 1985, my parents, trying to teach me the value of a dollar, and more importantly, looking to save money, offered me one dollar a day to babysit my younger sister after school three days a week. One Target novelization at the time cost two ninety-five, so the deal we struck was that I would forego the cash in exchange for two Doctor Who novelizations every other weekend. Add in the occasional Saturday night babysitting chore as my parents went out, that was one more Target book by itself, then on Super Bowl Sunday, 1985, we went to Walden Books at the old Mid-Island Plaza in Nassau County, New York, for my first three novelizations. I stood there in front of the science fiction shelves, head cocked to my right to read the spines, then after about 20 minutes came away with three likely winners, Doctor Who and the Cybermen, Doctor Who and the Invasion of Time, and Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks. We got home on a bitterly cold day, and I read the Cybermen pretty much before the game started. I was a few chapters into the invasion of time by the time the teams were ready for kickoff. My father was increasingly annoyed that I wasn't watching the game, and he made me come downstairs, leaving the book behind, into the den to watch President Reagan toss that coin. I stuck around for another 45 courtesy seconds, which is about as much time as I give in time flight, and then I ran back upstairs. The doctor needed me to fend off Commander Andrew's assassination attempt, you see. And so it began. Every other Saturday, a new pair of books. My parents went out again the following Saturday night, so two weeks to the day after my first purchase, I was back in Walden Books, carefully curating three more titles, An Unearthly Child, The Visitation, and The Demons, the last of which began my long-term relationship with one Miss Joe Grant, which I'm happy to say continues to this day. And that's when the dream started. I'd been spending so many weekends with my head cocked to the side, reading novelization spines, and deciding which two or three I wanted, that I'd find myself in my dreams in a bookstore with a limited budget, able to pick out only two or three titles from a long, long shelf. I'd grab a book, it would vanish from my hands, or it would morph from an exciting new title into a title that I already owned. Years later... While researching a paper on Walt Kelly's Pogo, the great American newspaper comic strip, I found an essay written by the elusive Bill Watterson of Calvin and Hobbes fame. Turns out that Bill, too, had those dreams. In his dreams, he was at the bookstore, coming across shelves full of Pogo compilations. Only he'd get to the cash register and have no money to buy them. Bill, I feel you, buddy. I still have those dreams to this day. Just the other night, I dreamed that it was my local... Brooklyn bookstore, and there was a single volume of John Peel's double novelization of the Daleks' master plan with a bright orange spine, the same color as the bright orange spine on Terrence Dix's novelization of Inferno, in fact. Naturally, in my dream, the book disappeared from my hands before I could wake up, still holding it. And so, my real-life purchases went on, with more success than my recurring dream purchases. Of giddy significance was the day the Walden Books cashier misread the price on the back of the Kinda novelization and charged me $1.35 instead of $2.95. My father, feverish with the prospect of a bargain, 
instructed me to run back and pick out five more books, quick, before the cashier got off shift. Thanks to barcode scanners and computers, that unique father-son bonding moment would never happen again today. Within a few years, I had the complete set. My copies have no resale value, of course, because I'd marked them up. I wrote in all the cliffhanger moments, first in red ink, and then later a little more wisely in pencil. If any book omitted a cliffhanger, I would just go in and write it by hand. One day, I'll need to get Linda Barron to autograph the page in the novelization of Enlightenment, where I wrote out her end of episode three cliffhanger rant in blue pen, because that rant does not appear in the book. I completed my collection at the Visions Convention in Chicago in 1996, and I still remember the last two books that I needed, The Horror of Fang Rock and The Power of Kroll. 36 years after I started, I now have that complete set, and I was even able to meet the great Terrence Dix once at a convention on Long Island in 2014 and got him to autograph my copy of The Invasion of Time. I should have brought all 67 of his books and had him sign each one, but that would have held up the line. The Target books have moved across the country with me, twice from New York to Los Angeles, and then back again. My own daughter, just six months younger than I was when I started reading Doctor Who and the Cybermen, shows no interest in the books herself, and so the hobby is likely going no further down the family tree than me. But I'm comforted by the sight of those books, and I still read them. I'm on Fury from the Deep now as I record this. That's a good one, too. You see, to quote the late American memoirist Jim Bouton, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a book, and in the end it turns out that it was the other way around all the time. Postscript. San Francisco won Super Bowl 19, 38-16. The game was watched by an estimated 85.5 million Americans. But not me, and I stand by that decision. Thank you, Jason. Now it's the turn of Joe Ford. Some listener discretion is advised here. The following clip contains upsetting scenes which some listeners may find disturbing. Hi, uh, my name's Joe Ford, and uh, you might know me online uh, as Doc Oho from Doc Oho Reviews, um, or you alternatively might know me from my relatively new podcast, The Nine Month Be Praised, or my extremely new podcast, A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. So, the target novels. I uh, have a story to tell that may chill your blood and shake your bones and uh, make you never, ever want to hear from me ever again when you hear it. Um, so the Target novels, I started collecting them about 30 years ago. So a long, long time ago. Um, what would I have been? I would have been 10 years old. And um, I think it took me about 15 years to build up the entire collection. Uh, and I mean the entire collection. I, I went to some extremes to find them all because I was like a ma mad collector of Doctor Who. I, I wanted everything. Um, I think it was Big Finish that broke me of that because, frankly, there was no way of continuing to collect everything without... <laughs> like destroying your bank balance or taking out a second mortgage um and uh so i built up this very impressive collection and it was a real mixture it was like some of some old dusty ones some uh of the brand new ones with the new covers um yeah and but they never really meant 
much to me because I always came at the show via the TV series. You know, I loved Doctor Who on TV. I love TV. Uh, you know, and I, I wanted to kind of take apart Doctor Who and, um, you know, look at the performances, the direction, the music, uh, even like the, the, the ways of making television at the time. I was, I was and I still am obsessed with television. Um, and honestly, like my first real love for Doctor Who was uh, the eighth Doctor books, which always felt like very sophisticated and less sophisticated now I've read a lot more but actually they were one of my first ways into reading so sort of the longer length novels was sort of my way into Doctor Who imprint so when I went back and read the targets they felt so brief and uh economic and uh, so uh, one fateful day I was moving house and my partner at the time said to me, something has got to go. Now, we weren't moving uh, from place to place within the same town. We were moving from town to town, about an hour's drive away, to a smaller place. So we were downsizing. Something had to go. Yes, I know. I can, I can feel the quivering anxiety in your stomach already. Um, so I looked around at my massive collection of uh, BBC and Virgin books, uh, my Target novels, my DVDs and VHSs, uh, which obviously were never going to go because Doctor Who on television, as I've said. Um, and the day before we moved, I made the decision that haunts me to this day to get rid of all of my Targets. They don't even take up an incredible amount of space, so I'm not sure why I made that choice. But that was a choice I made. And so I, like um, murdering somebody, and uh, I put them in a big black sack. And I know what you're thinking. This guy, he's smart. Well, okay, I wouldn't say that, but he's he's smartish. And so he would re-gift these or take them to a charity shop, uh, you know, and delight some fan that comes in and sees the entire collection of targets. No, I put them in a a bin <laughs> outside my flat, and they probably ended up in some skip, and then buried under the ground. And the thought of that haunts me to this day because I. I loathe the idea of throwing away books, disposing of knowledge, especially when I think it's the targets, which was this body of incredible prose and ideas and dialogue. And, you know, it's material that delights and excites. So the thought of throwing them away and, uh, you know, for them never to be seen again, it fills me with horror. And so, that was like 15 years ago. I have spent the last 15 years making penance for that awful decision uh, and recollecting them. And it's been a pleasure to do so. Um, 
because I made a decision. I didn't want like spanking new copies. I didn't want pristine copies. I was gonna rebuy the targets and they were gonna be lived, you know? I wanted copies that were yellowed and had, you know, Simon's book or Peter's book written in with the pages folded over because they'd been, you know, as bookmarks. I wanted tatty old copies of Target novels that had been in the hands of boys and girls and thrilled them and excited them at bedtime. I think reading is a very tactile exercise, uh, very sensual thing. See, that's why, you know, I could probably go online and through illicit means find some, you know, download of every Target novel and just read it on a Kindle. And I have a Kindle. But uh, I don't enjoy using it. I, I, I want to feel the knowledge in my hand. And with these Doctor Who books, I want to feel like um, like they've lived and breathed, you know? Uh, I probably sound insane. And <laughs> But it's true. It is true. Um, you know, you can smell the pages and you can smell the must. Um, yeah books books that have had a life and so that's what I'm doing so I scour every secondhand shop and every now and again I find a terrific haul you know cast aside the pristine ones and pick up you know the scabby old ones um and what I found is revisiting them is a fresh love of the targets from the point of view of an adult so this isn't like a nostalgic love for me because I don't think I had a lot of love for the targets as a kid. Um, I considered them like a necessary evil to collect. Like I said, it was a TV series. But as an adult, it's not even like the big hitters as well because I read all those targets. And so I knew the Dalek invasion of Earth and uh, the Orton invasion and the cave monsters uh, the Crusades, the Daleks, that they were all really, you know, they were fantastic books. What I've discovered is some of the uh, less popular stories. So I'm talking about like the Terence Dix novels of the, of the late Tom Baker time, you know, sort of the Williams time. Um, things like the Android Invasion, uh, some of the less popular Peter Davison and Colin Baker stories, uh, Paradise Towers, um, in novel form, they come to life in the most incredible way with, like, real economy of prose, but but powerful prose with no budget, um, where every story is directed by Douglas Canfield or Graham Harper because it's being directed in your head. And some of those stories, Invisible Enemy, The Power of Kroll, they come alive, like, in ways that, on television, they never had a chance. The Three Doctors, in prose, it is the most ambitious, visually stunning story. Um, and the writers, as well, I, I, I'm... I've always loved Terence Dicks, but his economy of prose the way he can write an action sequence in a few paragraphs, but really, like, make it lodge in your head in a vivid way. Um, Malcolm Hulk and how he can um, give a much darker, much more sort of toxic spin on the characters and situations in his stories. 
Ian Martha, who um, really goes to town and does some nasty things with his books. Uh, The Invasion, even like The Dominators, Reboss. um, He offers a much more, way more sort of gothic, horrific spin on those stories. Um, Yeah, so... My suggestion is maybe for once turn off the nostalgic part of your brain and read those books for what they are. And that is an impressive body of work from many, many different authors, fantastic authors, um, offering a, a fresh, exciting... Those stories just don't age in the target books they are as ambitious as as visually stunning as creative as they're supposed to be and that's the targets for you they stage these amazing doctor who stories gosh the zarbi doctor who and the zarbi and uh you don't have to be embarrassed by those like maybe you're not embarrassed by the tv stories um, I'm not anymore. But you you can hold them up as impressive pieces of storytelling and done in an extremely economic way. And I've learned that through making a really stupid mistake one day and, um, yeah, <laughs> serving my prison sentence of recollecting, recollecting and spending a fortune on these fabulous, tatty, battered, astonishing pieces of work. I have very recently been reunited with my Target books. They were at my mum's house in a cardboard box for many, many years. And now that I've got them at home and I had a rummage in them earlier this week, and there is a lot to rediscover. Denise Sutton. I probably read some from the library when I was a kid, over the years, but the first one I actually owned was State of Decay, which I bought in early 1982, I think, for the princely sum of £1.25p. So that remained quite a special one for me for a lot of years, and I did buy another copy later on because it got a bit tatty. But, um, I mean, they were things of beauty, The covers were, to be fair, of variable quality, um, from the extremely beautiful illustrations to the poor photo montages of the uh, Davison novelisations particularly. We're a bit guilty of that sometimes. But uh, I think for me, as a young fan, the beauty was looking at all of the spines in chronological order, because that's just how I roll lined up on the shelves and uh, just that was a collection of books that I really, really loved and enjoyed and appreciated and it was always exciting to uh, get a new one, especially if it was a story that had been before I was born or that I had never seen or barely remembered and of course the new ones as well from the later series. They all had their separate appeals, whether it was something completely new or not, um, 
And of course, back in the 1980s, which is what we're talking about with me, it was really the only way to live or experience many of the stories um, because this was before I knew about the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, before I knew that there were people with audio copies of most of the stories and that you could get dodgy VHS copies sent over from Australia if you had the right connections. Um, So with regards to the writers, of course... Well, Terence Dix, Uncle Terence himself. We did another podcast about him on his passing a few years ago. He was, of course, a legend. He brought his own unique stamp to the stories. Um, But other notables are, of course, Christopher H. Bidmead, who he added a dimension to the stories that he had himself written for the screen, the novelizations too, they were such high quality books, they brought extra insight into how he saw the characters and there was a lot of background and some genuinely beautiful writing. Um, Logopolis is a standout in this respect, but also Castrovalva, very, very good indeed. Um, But I think that we really need to talk about Ian Martyr, who, best known for playing Harry Sullivan in the um, early Tom Baker years, and he also had a part in Carnival of Monsters. But he, he died far too young, but he wrote a total of ten novelisations, including Harry Sullivan's War, which was a novel that he wrote himself based on Harry Sullivan and some adventures after he left the Doctor. Um, And he also worked with Tom Baker on his idea for Scratchman, which, uh, if you haven't read it or got the audiobook of it, read by Mr Baker himself, that is a really, really interesting, (laughs) slightly psychedelic in places, Doctor Who adventure, the likes of which I have never seen anywhere else. So thoroughly recommend that one. I mean... Ian Martyr, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times and he was such a lovely guy. He obviously had a genuine love of the series, not just for his own character, Harry Sullivan, or even his own era, but he seemed to really love bringing it to a wider or a new, younger audience, novelising stories from the Hartnell and Troughton eras, amongst others, which... uh, would otherwise have been completely lost to time back in the 80s. So, um, yes, Harry Sullivan, Ian Martyr, I salute you. Thank you very much. And now I'd just like to end with a reading from the end of The Enemy of the World, Um, the Troughton story, of course, which was recently rediscovered and is... uh, really really interesting story with Patrick Troughton playing not only the doctor but also the villain his double the evil megalomaniac salamander so the doctor was no longer shouting 
With his forehead pressed against the console, he seemed to be murmuring gentle, reassuring words to his beloved apparatus, trying to calm it enough to give him time to reach the vital stabilisers and thus regain control. His two young friends were suddenly filled with hope. Salamander really did seem to have disappeared forever and they knew they could trust the doctor. He had never let them down. Now they willed him to succeed as his outstretched hand finally closed around the stabiliser lever and gradually but firmly adjusted the setting. After what seemed an eternity, the TARDIS at last began to respond and all at once Jamie and Victoria found themselves laughing and cheering with relief. Glancing at the doctor, they saw that familiar look of intense and insatiable curiosity come over his face as the uproar subsided and the police box gradually stopped shaking so violently. They knew that they were about to materialise left again in some unknown corner of the universe. Although they did not yet know where it would be, they were certain that it would not be a dull place. And, in the end, that was all that really mattered. My first exposure to Target novels came in the mid-1980s. Danholm. We'd just moved to Derby, and there was a local library about uh, half a mile from my house. We still only had one television in the house, um, which was my dad's prerogative. Uh, we did have a video, but it was strictly for his horse racing, which he'd missed if he was at work, and his Alfida Zane pet collection. So the chance of me watching Doctor Who on video were fa- fairly small. I had a small shed at the top of the garden, that was my domain, and that collapsing shed became my TARDIS, and my very favourite thing was to go to the library at the weekends uh, with my pound pocket money, um, see if they'd got any old Target books for sale, which occasionally they did, but otherwise I'd go up and borrow as many of the particularly Tom Baker Target novels as I could. Uh, I can't remember which the first one I read was, but I definitively remember having an argument with somebody about how cool the cover of the Crotons was in um, probably about 1988. So I think that was uh, 88 or 89. So I think that was definitely one of the first ones. And I think the ones that resonated with me most were the ones I could read in my shed on a creaky night on when the wind was howling. Uh, things that were the very Holmesian horror style of Target. So things like Image of the Fendal, Talons of Wang Chang, and probably my favourite of all time, Horror of Fang Rock. Uh, but there were others as well. The Demons um, was always one that worked very well for me. And I do remember being on holiday in a small town near Whitby and stopping in a old farmhouse that was allegedly haunted and that would have been the perfect place for a target novel um, of that ilk but I actually remember reading Genesis of the Daleks there which is probably about as hard sci-fi as I ever got with uh, the target novels and the thing was they were available I could read them and I could read them in my own time with nobody else uh, wanting to use the TV or the video Uh, I didn't have to wait for next week's episode I didn't have to save up to get them the target books were there they were available and they were really part of my 80s zeitgeist of a mysterious um, mysterious horror folk horror sort of aspects of life 
Uh, it was the era of Sherlock Holmes on the telly with Jeremy Brett, and there was very much in my mind a lot of crossovers between the types of horror, horror and detective and sci-fi elements that that era of Doctor Who had. So Target books very much fitted into the other things I was into, like Sherlock Holmes, like the Usborne books of the mysterious and unusual, etc. And I think, obviously, Terence Dix writing a couple of vampire novels as well definitely had uh, had an impact there uh, in the 80s. So that was that's my overriding memory of Target, and they really made me a lifelong Doctor Who fan. Thank you very much to Denise, Dan and Joe for your recollections. Simon Fox, whose idea this podcast was, uh, thank you very much to Simon, uh, now talks about his experience of the Target novels, uh, sort of paving the way for him to read some of the Doctor Who books that came after that. I discovered the Target books um, along with Doctor Who, really. Um, I remember watching Doctor Who from the Peter Davison days and one or two Colin Bakers, particularly Terror of the Vervoids, but I only really became a fan from Time and the Rani onwards. And that's when I became aware of the books and started collecting those. Um, to my young mind, so I would have been eight, nine, ten years old at the time, um, the, it was a revelation to me that the books really expanded on the TV series. And uh, you, you do have the bog-standard target tellings, uh, straightforward ones like Time and the Rani and Paradise Towers, etc., where it's more or less just what you see on screen. But then towards the end of the run, um, you start to get things like The Curse of Fenric and Remembrance of the Daleks, and it added so much more detail and colour. It felt like what we would now think of as a DVD extra, but then felt like privileged information almost, and it really delved into the character's thinking. And even things like um, The Hand of Omega in Remembrance of the Daleks, you see things from that point of view, um, that really wasn't seen on screen until Day of the Doctor many, many years later, when the moment was played by Billy Piper. Um, and, of course, The Curse of Fenric, which is one of my favourite stories, always was um, and always will be. Um, and you, you get these little subplots and um, uh, incidental things, like a letter from Bram Stoker to his wife. Um, yeah, it's it just really, really adds to the whole colour of the adventures and they were really a stepping stone for me it was a short step from the target McCoy targets to the new adventures which came about in the early 90s um, so it seemed like a natural progression to me to go on to the new adventures after these because I already knew the characters as they were in print I was thinking of them of the Doctor and Ace in print as much as I was as a visual thing on television. I'm Simon Fox, um, and my Twitter handle is at UncleBeard1978. Thanks, Simon. And thank you very much for downloading and listening to this episode of the Trap One podcast. And thank you to all the brilliant contributors who've shared their target memories. I'll put all their Twitter handles, blogs, and podcasts in the show notes. They're all really worth following. You can find the Trap One podcast on Twitter as at Trap One underscore, on Instagram as DWTrap underscore one, and on Facebook as Trap One DW. In all cases, one is O-N-E, not the number one. Please consider subscribing for more episodes and leaving a star rating or review if you have the time next time you're in your podcatcher app. 
We're going target but crazy over the next few weeks on the podcast. I'll be talking to Times champion author Chris McEwen about his book, which Telus Publishing has just reprinted in the target book style. Uh, it's even numbered 157 and sits beautifully alongside the rest of the target collection. I also have a fantastic lineup of co-hosts to review the next wave of Target books. I can't wait to record those episodes. But before that, on next week's podcast, I'm joined by three of my favourite Doctor Who fan artists, Sophie Arles, The City of Jeff, and Time War Simon, to discuss their influences and inspiration. I'm really excited for that. I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, I'll leave you with a reading from the forthcoming Target novelisation of The Crimson Horror by Time War Simon himself, Simon Vox. Doctor Who, The Crimson Horror, by Mark Gatiss. To my heirs, I'm all too conscious, as I assemble this rambling narrative, then it may prove altogether too fantastical for the reader to believe. If these pages do indeed come down to you, descendants of the Thursday line, in the confident and expectant hope that a young lady will one day accept my unworthy hand, then I trust that you will look kindly on your ancestor, and do not look upon these scribblings instead as pointing to any softening of the brain. I have attempted, in a regrettably haphazard fashion, to collect into a coherent story the various accounts which began in 1893, with my unfortunate brother's disappearance, and ended in a saucy alleyway in Bradford, and the altogether more mysterious disappearance of a tall blue box. Together, these journal entries, phonographic recordings, scribbled notes, eyewitness accounts, and the best guesses constitute what the yellow press came to call the Crimson Horror, and its curious prequel. There is much here that is unaccountable, much that is baffling and strange. But though you may suspect your unfortunate relatives to have been under the influence of Mr. Wells's scientific romances, or, more perfidious even than sensational literature, to have been in the thrall of the Green Fairy, all that you're about to read is true. Even the sillier parts. Jonas Thursday, Islington, 1895. <laughs>